Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Get over to Leon Tailoring for that young person who graduated. Congratulations, by the way. And make sure they've got the clothes for that big job interview. Hey, the economy may be good, but you still got to dress for success. And Leon Tailoring, they can help your young person do that with the professional wardrobe and attire that they need. And so all those years of college and getting a degree do not go to waste. So Leon Tailoring, the perfect place to get your young professional off to that start in the world of work. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Well, it has been a while since we've spoken with our guest, me running for mayor, took me off the air for a little while, as also uh, we got the legislative session and a primary, so lots of political things to talk about. So join us on the newsline is our good friend Andy Downs, Professor Emeritus of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University for Wayne. So Andy, my friend, uh, always good to chat with you, old friend. It's been a while. It has, and I'm glad to be back on. I, uh, sorry things didn't go the way you wanted them to in the primary, but uh, we get to chat again, so that's good. Yeah, and my, my, and my wife, however, is the happiest woman in Marion County right now. I just want to <laughs> say that for the record. Uh, my mom told my dad that running for office was like fi- or filing for office was like filing for divorce. So uh, tell her she should use that line. <laughs> no worries, my friend. Uh, so uh, how would you describe Indiana's political landscape these days? I would say uh, on the first part, uh, we are we are clearly not that anyone thought this was a, a surprise, but we are clearly conservative in what we choose to do. Number one, number two, incumbency is not the uh, protector that it used to be. Ask several mayors and council members throughout the state, and number three. Uh, although legislators said they were not going to be talking about certain things, they did end up talking about those certain things. So we can count on the legislature to still not necessarily at the end of the session point to the victories they said they were trying to achieve at the start of the session. Well, let's start with the legislative session. Uh, it seemed that uh, the big issue was obviously the budget, you know, extra money running around. You know, what to do with the surplus? Do we do a 13 check for pensioners? Do we give them money for schools? You know, do, we, do, we, do we pay off our bills? Uh, how do you think lawmakers did? Well, you know, this was complicated, and, and I'm not sure that voters really are giving the legislators enough credit. Uh, and here's why I say that. Not, I'm not insulting the intelligence of the voters. It's just a lot more complicated than uh, a lot of us would like to believe. That's why we elect people to do this stuff, because we, we don't have the time or the inclination to do it ourselves. The money that has been coming in has been surprising. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, Revenue came back faster than expected. We have more revenue than expected. And the question is, what do you do with that revenue? And there are multiple choices. One choice, give the money back to taxpayers. Let them spend it. And that's what you'd expect conservatives to say. Another approach is, Let's use this money for some one-time expenditures. So let's go ahead and resurface some roads or bridges. Let's put, the, let's put a big infusion, infusion of cash into pensions, those sorts of things. And a third option is, hey, let's put some money into uh, things that will be ongoing costs. There are a bunch of other options we could talk about, but those are sort of the three main uh, lumps. A little bit of all of that happened, which is what usually happens when you're talking about uh, a budget and the negotiations that go on. But I think there will be some voters who are wondering why more money wasn't put into some of those ongoing expenses. And there definitely will be some who will say, wait a minute, how come you didn't give me my money back? And also, I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, the, the, the big disagreement seemed lawmakers had was over, uh, over a conservative Republican idea over the school voucher program. Yeah. Well, um, that got a little bit interesting when a couple of legislators started to realize, wait a minute. Uh, we don't have the oversight of those dollars the way we have them over 
uh, money going to uh, charter schools and to traditional public K-12 schools. I think that's what started things uh, going down that road. But anybody who's been watching the expansion of the voucher program here, and although normally viewed as a Republican issue, there certainly are some Democrats who are in favor of it. Anyone who's been watching the voucher program had to know expansion was going to continue to come. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And, and I don't think that, that anyone should say, well, we've reached the point where there will be no more expansion. I think there will be expansion. However, there may be some attempt to insert a little more accountability uh, for those dollars. So some of the schools getting the money now may have to start to say, and here's how we use the money. Our guest on the program today is our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, professor emeritus uh, of the Mike Downs Center. So we're just getting caught up on uh, a lot of things that have been going on uh, this past spring uh, in Indiana, politically speaking. Uh, Andy, something I thought was interesting, uh, the governor, uh, Eric Holcomb, did not veto any bills this year. What are your thoughts on that? You know, the veto is so easy to override in Indiana. It, they, the only time that a governor is going to do it is really a statement um, of, of, of displeasure with bills because it only takes a simple majority to override the veto. When you look at supermajority control of the chambers by the Republicans, when you look at the margin of victory for the bills that were getting passed, uh, the governor would have been basically delaying the inevitable and really delaying it for small intervals of time, probably not even worth it. Better to figure out as the chief administrator of the country to figure out, or of the state, excuse me, to figure out how that's just going to get done. It is a really weak tool for governors, and it's one that is just a statement. The governor can make a statement when signing a bill. He can say, I'm signing this because the veto can be overridden. Uh, I don't agree with it, but, you know, um, we got to do what the legislature says. And it's interesting, too, because, like I said, Bob, you're, you're absolutely right. It's more, it's more about the same because unlike Congress, where it takes a two-third majority, in Indiana, it's a very simple majority is all it takes to override a veto. Exactly. And, and uh, 50, 50 plus one uh, is not a hard number to get to when bills are passing with, you know, 60, 66, 68 votes. It's, you, you know you can hold on to 51 votes when you have that kind of margin. Uh, something else I thought was interesting, too, uh, some of those darn cultural issues that uh, – we say we're not going to talk about the end up uh, surfacing. And there were, there were two bills that really caught my attention. One was the, the bill about library books. The other one was about the, the quote, unquote, uh, don't say gay. Or if, if a student wants to change their, their gender, they got to let the parents know and then send it in writing. Uh, what, what, what do you think about all this stuff? Because once again, it doesn't it doesn't put anybody to work. It doesn't pay down debt. It's kind of more, that's sort of more like, hey, what's the point of all this stuff? It not only does it not put it into work, doesn't pay down debt, but remember, the schools now have to set up a new appeals process. They have to publish the list of all the books they have. So they've actually been given work to do uh, over an issue that, quite frankly, I think if you talk to most building administrators and, for that matter, superintendents, was already being dealt with. If a parent found a book objectionable, in other words, a child came home with a, a library book, and let's face it, Parents find out about that thing by being involved in the child's life. But if a child came home with a book that was objectionable or was told, uh, hey, mom, dad, I've got to read this book that the parents find objectionable, the, the parent would have been certainly welcome to contact the administration of buildings I'm aware of. I'm sure there are some with principals who are not as uh, helpful as I like to believe all of them are or at least should be. But then the principals would have dealt with it. Now we actually have to have a procedure that will have, you know, rules by which it's supposed to operate. They have to have an appeals procedure in there as well. You're the attorney of the two of us. Uh, you, you want to tell me that you won't be able to find a way in which a school violated its own policy or its appeals process and create yet more 
uh, havoc that is really not necessarily targeted at what the parents or the legislators want to have addressed. I like to think of it as ways for lawyers to put money in their pockets so they can pay for their vacations to Seattle in a couple of weeks. So <laughs> I'm just saying, old friend. <laughs> I'm just 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 throwing that out there. Uh, any other uh, before we change gears a little bit? Any other legislation out there that uh, kind of caught your attention that didn't necessarily get a whole lot of press? Uh, I'm still intrigued by the public health uh, uh, funding, and I'm intrigued by it because I think this is really starting to solidify a way the state will move forward funding a lot of things. Uh, as we talked about earlier in the session. The, the governor seems to be interested in this idea of uh, cost sharing. Yeah, the state will provide some funding, but the local government has to put some money on the table as well. And by the way, if a local government doesn't want to do that, then fine, they don't get access to the money. It's clearly not a priority for you. I'm intrigued by that as a way in which we'll see projects funded going forward. We've already seen it in transportation. To some degree, we see it in education. Now we're seeing it in terms of public health. I just expect that there will be a, a number of things that head down that road. And, of course, how can we not talk about the tenderloin and whether or not we are the Hoosier state? Uh, those are things that I'm sure went under the radar, but those bills did not pass. Our guest on the program today is our good friend Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University Fort Wayne. He's Professor Emeritus. So we're getting caught up on uh, the Indiana's political landscape. We haven't chatted uh, in a while. Uh, Andy, uh, some big news as we record this conversation this week. Uh, Jennifer McCormick, the worst-kept secret uh, in the state of Indiana, because uh, we wrote about this in the cheat sheet months ago, uh, has announced that she is a candidate for governor. Uh, obviously, she's got a little bit of name ID. She's run statewide before, but as a Republican, uh, what do you think? Well, you're right. Worst kept secret in, I think, all politics right now. I think it's a smart idea for her to get in now. I know a lot of people would say, holy cow, it's, it's the middle of 23. That election's not till November of 24. What the heck is she doing? Well, what she's doing is recognizing that she's not going to have access to the kind of cash that the Republicans have access to. Keep in mind that the, the, the top three Republicans right now, Braun, Doden, and Crouch, they're all sitting on about $3 million last time I checked. They're going to spend a lot of that in the primary, and you can make a good argument for why each one of them should be the nominee, but they'll spend a lot of money explaining why they should be the nominee and the other two shouldn't be. Uh, but Jennifer McCormick's going to need to have millions of dollars on hand by the time the primary rolls around, because whoever gets the Republican nomination is going to have access to cash very, very quickly. And a concept you and I have discussed before, a lot of political investors from outside the state had chosen to put money into Democratic races in Indiana, whether that was By or Donnelly or Hale or Greg or a number of other people, thinking, okay, Indiana might be a light blue state or a purple state or at least a pink state. Let's put some money into a D candidate and win some races. Those candidates that had all that big money put behind them did not do a whole lot better than candidates with very little money behind them. So it could be that Jennifer McCormick's not going to have access to those big dollars from elsewhere. Having said that, now I want to contradict myself very quickly, she also has a base that others did not. Her time as superintendent of public instruction and her focus on education is going to give her access to some, some national money as well as national donors, individual donors, who might make small contributions to her campaign as a pro-public education candidate. So it would actually help her out. She won't get those big infusions of cash, but she'll get lots and lots of little infusions of cash. And she's already been walking around the state talking to everybody. So, you know, she's, she's doing the things candidates have to do. 
I, I don't think you can write her off by any stretch of the imagination, but she's got to know that this is an uphill battle at best. And I was going to ask you about that because uh, unlike those other candidates, uh, Jennifer McCormick does have that that education, that that teacher base. You know those folks across Indiana who aren't happy with the way the legislature legislature works. But the the question is, is that enough to to to, to get over the hump? I think it can be. You know, as as a Democrat, she's she's assured basically thirty five to forty percent of the vote. That part's done, and and uh, I don't want to say written in stone, but that's basically what statewide bees are able to pull in. The question is, where does she find that extra 10 or 15 percent? She may be able to pull some of it from especially uh, suburban individuals who are college educated, who have been viewed as the swing voters in the state. If she can make up some of that 10 percent, 15 percent there, she's in a good heading in a good direction. And then also remember that we're talking about somebody who used to be a Republican. So she's not some you know, crazy lefty uh, who will have a track record that offends some Republicans. Uh, there may be plenty of Republicans who say, "I'm," especially if whoever ends up getting the Republican nomination ends up sounding like somebody who is very, very far to the right. Uh, speaking of Republicans, how do you uh, assess the Republican primary for governor right now? Like we said, uh, Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch, Senator Mike Braun, uh, former IDC chairman under Mike Pence, uh, Eric Doden. Uh, how do you match up the, those three so far? Normally, I'd say you have to start with the lieutenant governor, uh, and, and Suzanne Crouch certainly has been visible. She travels the state regularly. She has $3 million. She's run two statewide campaigns, well, actually more than two statewide campaigns. So she's somebody who you have to start with as perhaps the lead candidate, but she has the great misfortune of running against Mike Braun, who sort of came out of nowhere to get the nomination for the Senate seat, defeating two, uh, people might argue, better recognized Republicans. Uh, and he also comes with the ability to self-fund if he chooses to do so. Keep in mind the campaign finance laws for state are very different than federal candidates. Uh, but he can self-finance if he wants to do that. And I, she's not really in a position to do that. I think because of that and because of his uh, elevated status on the national stage, I think maybe he has to be listed as the front runner. Like I said, normally you'd start with the LG, but I think in this case you got to go with the senator. Uh, Doden, although he got in first, and he certainly has been raising money, he cannot be discounted. But unfortunately for him, he probably has to be called as the person in third place. Uh, but, but, and this is something important for people to remember, a front runner, quite often people relax and they stop putting in the effort. If you're in second place or a close third place, that's when maybe you can get that extra push from your volunteers. So the person in first place, a little problem with motivation sometimes. Second and third place usually don't have that problem as long as it's close. Our guest on the program today is Andy Downs of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, with us for a few more minutes uh, on the program today. Uh, like I said, uh, Andy, we just had the primary in Indiana this month. Uh, apart from uh, the, the race of yours truly, uh, anything uh, catch you off guard or surprise you? <laughs> uh, well, up my way, I think there there is one race that has to be talked about, and that is the race for mayor of Auburn, Indiana. I know a city a lot of people aren't thinking about, but it's where the Auburn Court Duesenberg Museum is located. Uh, that race right there, big excitement because the incumbent Republican was defeated in the primary. And he is not the only one that happened to, not the only incumbent that happened to. Uh, he was elected four years ago uh, when the longtime-serving Republican mayor, Norm Yoder, chose not to run. Mike Lay won that election and then was just defeated in a primary. 
which sort of does prove to people that the incumbency advantage is maybe not the armor that it used to be. So that one's a little exciting or a little interesting. Uh, also up my way, Huntington, Indiana, actually has an independent who is mayor, someone who used to be a card-carrying Republican, ran as an independent four years ago. He won that election, and instead of reverting back to his Republican roots, he said, I'm going to stay an independent. So he actually was not on the ballot in May and doesn't have to have his name on the ballot until later in the year. He has said he is running. He is running as an independent. And that's in a strongly, strongly, strongly Republican area. That will be interesting to watch. And uh, a little closer to you, obviously, I was watching the race in Carmel, as I think a lot of people did, when when um, the mayor decided he was not going to run for reelection. Uh, that certainly created an awful lot of excitement. And you had three really pretty good candidates running in that race legitimate candidates, not just gadflies. Uh, but the the other race would be the mayor's race on the opposite ticket than you were. And that was uh, Hogsett being challenged by Shackelford. I think that was an interesting race because in Shackelford you had a proven vote getter, and it was sort of a test of the party cohesion within Marion County. The last thing I guess I'll throw in would be Evansville, where once again the mayor decided he was not running for re-election. He threw his support behind one of the candidates. that She won that, that nomination and sort of proving that um, if, if the mayor uh, had run for re-election, he might have actually been able to win that re-election without too much difficulty, I think, based on the outcome of the race. Another race, too, my friend, that caught my attention was uh, the Tom Henry race up in Fort Wayne. Uh, Tom Henry, with all his issues, uh, still managed to pull off a victory. Yes, he did. And it was. this is another one of those instances when people were wondering what would be the size of the margin. Uh, he was running, for those who remember, he, he was arrested for DUI not that long ago. He's actually serving a sentence right now or a penalty right now. Uh, he was challenged in the primary by an individual who's been on the ballot before, who's involved in local party politics, so not really sort of just some um, way fringe sort of person, but a person who is a little bit mainstream within the party, uh, but somebody who's had problems raising money before. The question was, how big would the margin be? And Mayor Henry managed to pull off a pretty sizable victory here. And now the excitement begins, the real excitement, I will say, begins because it'll be Tom Henry, the incumbent on the Democratic side, Tom Didier, the Republican uh, on the on the other side, they faced off against each other many years ago in a city council race. Tom Didier won that race. So we have two really well-known individuals within the community come from large families. Everybody knows a Henry or a Didier. Uh, that will be a very exciting race to watch. And just as a last bit of trivia, if Mayor Henry wins and is able to serve one more year and one day, he will be the longest-serving mayor in Fort Wayne history. All right. Well, so we covered a lot of ground today on the program. Our guest on the program today has been our good friend, Andy Downs, of the Mike Downs Center for Indian Politics, Purdue University, Fort Wayne, Professor Emeritus. Andrew, my friend, always good to chat with you. Looking forward to chatting with you again later this summer. Hey, it was good to be back on the show with you. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.